You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. So also, if you'll open up your Bibles to um, James chapter 5, and while you're doing that, I want to talk to you just a little bit about uh, next week. Uh, Next week will be the final message in the James series, and we're going to look at the passage in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And in verse 13, it says, uh, is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. And then he goes on to say, is there anyone that's sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church so that the elders can pray over them. And then he goes on into the passage and it says, the, 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 the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And so next weekend, as we close out the series, and particularly as we close out the message, we want to put that to practice. And so what's going to happen next weekend is um, we become, as we come to the close of the message, we're going to end with a time of worship. And during that time of worship, we're going to have prayer teams here. And while we're worshiping, if there's anyone in trouble... Let them pray. You're going to have the opportunity to come and have someone pray with you, to pray that uh, God is greater than your situation and that he's working on your behalf. And if there's anybody that's sick, the elders of the church will be here, and they're going to lay hands on you and believe that the prayer of faith saves the sick. So I want you to begin to anticipate that time. Throughout this week, what I would ask is that you would, every time you think about coming next weekend, and I, here's what I would ask, think about coming next weekend, okay? Um, you don't want to miss this, but I, I, my prayer is that you would have, begin to have a sense of anticipation about the encounter we're going to have with God through the power of prayer. And if you're here next weekend and you're in a troublesome situation or if there's sickness in your body, you're going to have the opportunity to be prayed for. And if you know someone who's going through a troublesome situation or you know someone who is sick, invite them to come because they will have the opportunity to have someone pray for them. We're going to experience the power of God through the power of prayer. Would you anticipate that with me this next week? Would you? Okay, it's going to be a great weekend. I want to pray for today, but I also want to pray for next weekend. Father God, thank you for your presence here in this place today. Thank you that your spirit is alive and well. Thank you that we have breath that we can lift up to you through our voices and offer praise and adoration as we recall just how great a God you are. Father God, I pray that you will be pleased in everything that we say and do today. And as we look to the word, I pray that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, bring revelation uh, so that we can uh, apply it to our lives. And Father God, we pray for next weekend as well. Um, Lord, I pray that you would stir in us a sense of anticipation about what is going to happen next weekend. I pray, Father God, that you would prepare in advance those prayer teams that when they come, they'll come ready. Uh, there'll be words of knowledge, uh, words spoken over. But we pray, Father God, that as people come, that if they're in trouble, uh, they have an encounter with you, recognizing that you're greater than that trouble and you're working in their behalf. And if there are those who are sick, we pray that they would come and know that the prayer of faith will save the sick and that the, the, uh, the, uh, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So, Father God, we just anticipate and we ask that you stir that in us as we encounter you next week in all that we say, in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. 
Well, um, many of you know that a couple of weekends ago, I had uh, the opportunity to go to our Cornelius campus and speak while Pastor Farrell uh, was on sabbatical. In fact, today is his last week of sabbatical this Sunday, and then he'll be back uh, next Sunday. Um, And while I was there, I spoke on the passage in James from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. It's about how true faith is seen in how we plan for the future. And as I closed the message out that day, I shared a very personal story to to bring a point of application. And um, today, I want to share that story with you. I don't think any or many of you have ever heard this story because I haven't really shared it that much. Uh, And also today, as I share it, I want to share just a little bit more of you. I want to give you a little bit of briefly some of the behind the scenes insight they will help you know why I would uh, take time to, to tell this story. And, and I do, the purpose in my telling story is because as I was studying the six verses that we're going to look at today, um, I recognized that there was a direct correlation in my story and what James was saying in those verses. But I also know that um, while your story may be very different than my story, that there are other stories, and, and as we work through the passage today, as we work through the message, you're going to find a correlation that, that James is speaking something to you uh, that is very pertinent and that you will want to take and apply to your life uh, even now. So, so here's a story. Several years ago, uh, Cammie and I, we were presented with what I believed to be the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, immediately upon hearing about this opportunity, I made a decision. That's for us. That's the plan. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're supposed to do. And so at that point in time, I began to do everything within my personal power to make that happen. I worked and I worked hard to make sure that the opportunity that had been given to us, presented to us, would become a reality. Um, Of course, I understand the power of prayer, so I I prayed. Um, And I prayed over a six-month period Um, But in the time that I prayed over that six-month period, uh, never once as I was praying did I say, God, if this is your will for our lives, we want this to happen. And if it's not your will, then we surrender this opportunity because we know that you are watching out over every detail of our lives. In six-month period, and the whole time that I prayed, I never once, I never once prayed that prayer because I had already determined This was what was supposed to happen. So my prayers looked like this. God, I know what's supposed to happen. Um, It's not by coincidence. This opportunity has been presented to us. And so um, it's going to happen. And I'm expecting you to do everything that you need to do to make it happen. I might not have prayed it that way, but that was the intent. God, this is your will. Make it happen. Uh, Has anybody else ever prayed that way? Would you wanted something to happen? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So thanks for helping me know I'm not alone. Um, looking back, uh, I recognize now that I should have had some very different conversations with God because that plan that I had didn't go so well. In fact, it was painful and it was messy. Now, let me give you a little insight. This is what I didn't share in Cornelius. Um, The opportunity that had been presented to us Uh, was we were invited to um, assume a very prominent role in a very sizable church in another state. 
And again, as soon as I heard that, that sounded real appealing to me. That had to be God's plan. So we accepted that invitation after my selfish prayers for six months. And uh, we made the move. And the, the primary role that I, that we were brought there for is because um, there had been a, a verbal recognition that the church staff and church culture was spiritually very unhealthy. And they had heard about our heart and our passion to bring health into unhealthy church and staff situations. And so that's how the invitation got extended. Uh, and so we, we, we accepted the invitation. We made the move, uh, assumed the role. And uh, upon our arrival, we, we were welcomed. The red carpet was rolled out. Um, we set about doing what we had been called to do. And I can honestly say the first few months were the honeymoon period. And then one day, the honeymoon was very definitely over. Um, As we began to do what we were called to do and what we believe God has gifted us to do, um, we found that welcome turned into warfare. And there was resistance And there was suspicion. And we learned very quickly that um, it is impossible to um, work with God to bring uh, health into a spiritually unhealthy culture if the leadership at the highest levels aren't willing to experience health in their own lives. And there came the resistance. And so uh, what began to happen through that suspicion, through that resistance, um, for actually a considerable period of time, and I'm not setting us up to be a victim, I'm just telling you really what happened, because of the resistance and because of the unhealth, uh, Cammy and I experienced um, uh, emotional, mental, and spiritual abuse as a result of that culture. Because we were pushing against, we were actually doing warfare. And um, it was very painful. It, it, was, it was very messy. Um, but here's, here's the good news. I want to tell you what we learned in that situation. We learned how to wait on God. Let me say that again. We learned in the midst of, I'm going to call, oppression and persecution. We learned how to wait on God and to trust God to be our deliverer from that situation, rather than trying to um, manipulate the situation so we could deliver ourselves. And it was, it was hard. It was painful. But listen, that's the lesson we learned. We learned to wait on God. So now let me begin to take that story and connect it to today's passage. If you were here last weekend, you'll remember that um, as James was writing, he took a bit of a detour. Uh, When we have worked through the first four chapters, what we know is that James has been writing to a group of Jewish believers who have been dispersed abroad. And um, he's addressing what true faith looks like, and he's offering some very practical evidence uh, of true faith, how true faith is to be evidenced in our life. And so what he's doing is he's correcting some situations in these Jewish believers who have been scattered. Um, and as he's offering this correction, this direction, he is also calling them to repentance. He's calling them to a different way of life. 
And then we came to chapter 5 last week. And in those first uh, six verses, what we saw is he now he wasn't addressing a group of uh, Jewish believers who had been scattered abroad, but instead he was addressing a group of wealthy landowners who owned great portions of the countryside and um, employed many of those Jew, uh, Jewish believers who had been scattered. Uh, they employed them, but they were uh, at, at the same time they were robbing them, they were defrauding them of their wages that they were earning. They, they had them under uh, 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 just intense persecution. And so in these verses that we looked at last week, James is addressing that group of people, those persecutors, but he's not calling them to repentance. Instead, he's actually proclaiming judgment. He's announcing judgment on them. And basically what he says is, um, I want you to stop and I want you to think about the trouble and the misery that is waiting on you because of your mistreatment of these uh, people who are not of the same wealth status of you. I want you to stop. There's trouble and there's misery waiting on you. God will judge you. Really what he was saying is judgment has already been pronounced on you. You're going to reap what you've sown. It's going to happen. You can count on it. So he moves from um, uh, persecution now in the verses that we're going to look at today. He, 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 he moves from addressing the persecutors. So he moves back in the verses that we're looking at today where he's going to address the persecutors. He's, he's back on track. And um, he moves from judgment to comfort. He, he's, he's walking them through how they can experience comfort in the midst of this this persecution, but what he does is, is he offers uh, a, a new direction. He, he actually begins to deal with their attitudes and their responses, and, and he says uh, the way to to respond, the right attitude to respond to persecution when it comes is that you will learn to wait. None of us like to wait, do we? I don't like to wait. I want you to, um, I want you to follow along as I read uh, the first, uh, or, uh, from verses 7 through 13, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. He says, um, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. And stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at your door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And then in verse 12, above all else, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So let's walk through those passages, uh, those verses very briefly. It's very significant that verse 7 begins with, uh, be patient then. 
And by James using the word then, it would be the same as if he had used the word therefore. And so in other words, he's directing us back to something that he's already stated. And what he's directing back to or what he's connecting with are the verses in the first, uh, the verses that we looked at last week, the verses about persecution. He's directing us back to the persecution that's come at the hands of those wealthy landowners. And his encouragement regarding the persecution that they're suffering is, if you you've been badly wronged, be patient. If you've been badly wronged, be patient. I don't know about you, but when I hear that and I think about times of persecution, when I think about uh, the times that I've had to suffer at the hands of someone else, that requires uh, an attitude adjustment for me. It requires a different kind of response that I'm not accustomed to. Am I by myself? I mean, this is not what comes natural. We're being persecuted, and you say, be patient. You know, in general, we don't like to wait. Patience requires waiting, right? And specifically, when we're being persecuted, we don't like to wait because we want out of the pain. We want resolve right now. Yet James is saying, if you've been badly wronged, be patient. Then as he continues on, not only does he give purpose to their waiting, and the purpose is, be be patient then, if you've been badly wronged, for the Lord is coming. Do you realize that that's not something that we talk about in church much these days? We don't talk about the fact that Jesus is actually going to come back. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's what this book says. And today, you're sitting in a church that's actually a denomination. It's called the, the Four Square Church. And one of the four tenets of our faith, the, the church is built on Jesus only, Savior, Baptizer, Healer, and Jesus, the coming King, that He's going to come back again. And this is what James is saying. If you've been badly wronged, be patient, because the Lord is coming back. But then, by way of example, he gives perspective and necessity to the reality of waiting. And he gives this example of the farmer. He says, think about the farmer. Uh, And let's think about this. When, When a farmer plants seed, the farmer does not reap the crop in the same season that it sows the seed. Am I right? That's that's kind of a hard one for me because I, I wouldn't make a good farmer. Um, and I don't even plant grass seed well. Cammie can testify to this. There have been many times where we've needed to patch places in our in our yard, and I'll plant grass seed. I, I, please know I'm not exaggerating. Here's how my mind works. If I plant the grass seed on Monday morning, guess what I do on Tuesday morning? I go out and look at it to see if the grass seed has popped up through the ground yet because I don't like to wait. I'm not patient. I, want, I planted seed. The grass should be there. And if it's not there on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm out there every day looking at where's the grass seed? Where's the grass seed? Well, listen, this is what James is talking about. He's saying, if you've been badly wronged, be patient in the same way that the farmer has to wait because the farmer doesn't reap in the same season that the farmer sows. Instead, the farmer has to wait for the rains to come and water the crops. And the farmer has to wait for the seed to germinate in the ground. And the farmer then has to wait for the seed to sprout up through the ground. And then the farmer has to wait for the seed to produce a crop. 
He says, and that's just the way it is. The necessity of waiting. And he says, in the same way that the farmer has to wait, stand firm in your persecution. Have confidence in your persecution because the Lord will come again. So what's, what's the message that, that, that James is conveying? Well, it's the same message that the Apostle Paul conveys in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to this. Paul says, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. When you're in the midst of trouble, does it seem small? And doesn't it seem like it's going on forever? But Paul's saying something different. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and that will last forever. So both James and Paul are contrasting our persecution, our suffering, our trials with eternity. In other words, in light of eternity, the suffering and the persecution that we're going through is momentary because remember, our time here on earth, this is not all there is. This is just a small portion, but it's eternity that we, that we live for. And so he's saying, be patient when you've been badly wrong. Wait in the same way that the farmer waits because Jesus' return is imminent. It's not going to be this way forever. I love what it says in Revelation 21 verse 4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Can you imagine a time where there's no more tears? There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. There's no more death. When we have relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's the promise that we have. That's what we're living for. That's why we anticipate heaven. And then he goes on in verse 9. He says, uh, when you're suffering, don't turn on each other. Don't turn on each other. Um, have you ever found yourself in a time of persecution, oppression, suffering, and uh, your perspective kind of gets messed up, and suddenly everybody around you becomes the enemy? This is happening because of you and you and you and you and you. You're all the reason I'm going through this. Because our perspective is, is, is out of whack. And, and so we're not looking at things, right? And James is saying, don't do this. When you're going through persecution, don't grumble. Don't complain about other people. Instead, think this way. When you're wronged, be patient, knowing that the Lord will righteously judge every person. In other words, whomever your persecutor is, God is going to hold them accountable. That's his job, not ours. We're not the judge. He is. We can count on this. And then verse 10 11, his encouragement is, when life is pressing down on you, remember you are not the first person to experience this. You're not the only one who's ever gone through this. If you want to know how to navigate through persecution, if you want to learn how to wait, he says, consider the prophets. Or how about Job? Consider Job, because we know how Job persevered. If you've read the story of Job, you know it was bad news. Like, it could never get better. But in the end, God restored to him more than what he started with. 
because he waited. He persevered. And James is saying, follow their example because they knew how to wait on the Lord in their persecution. And then in verse 12, he says, do not swear. And so often we take this to mean he's saying, don't cuss, no no profanity. And let me just say, although that's not what he's talking about here, don't cuss. No profanity. I mean, clean, clean it up. But, but instead, here he's talking about the taking of oaths. In James' day, the oaths were so frequently used that they had lost their significance. Their words weren't matching their actions. So there was inconsistencies in what they said, what they did, and what they said they believed because they were misusing oaths. So James is saying to those who are being persecuted, uh, especially by these wealthy landowners, but it's for us today, in your trials... Be consistent in what you say. Let integrity and godly character guide your speech. Why would he say this? How would we apply this to us? I don't know about you. I'm just being really honest with you today. Have you ever, have you ever been in a time where you were being oppressed, persecuted, just in a really tough trial, and you were tempted? If I just rearrange the truth a little bit that possibly it will relieve some of the pain or maybe it will cause this suffering to go away. I've done that. If I just, maybe if I just say it this way. And James is saying, don't do that. Let your words be simple. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. So, in these six verses, really, what James is dealing with is our right response to suffering. But it, it actually takes us back full circle because the very first week in this series, in chapter 1, this is where James started. He says, when you experience various kinds of trials, have great joy. And we go, oh my goodness, what are you talking about, James? But he, he, he's, he's, he's bringing it back again. Uh, and in, in chapter 1, he was really talking about when you face a trial, hold up under the trial. God is with you. And so here it's the same thing, but instead of talking about the trial itself, he's talking about how we are resp- to respond to the instigator of the persecution. The instigator of the trial. In other words, he's saying... Um, this, this is all about how we respond to the people who have done us wrong. How we respond to the people. Um, I think you'll agree with me when I say when we're being persecuted, uh, it's easy to act wrongly towards the persecutor. Right? Uh, in fact, let me just see from you. Can you offer me, when, you're, when, when there's someone who is using you, abusing you, mistreating you, what are some of the natural ways? I don't want your spiritual answers. What are some of the natural ways that you might want to respond to that person? You want to, Candy says you want to smack them. <laughs> Somebody said revenge. What else? Give me two more. What? Cause pain. Cause pain, yeah. One more. I have a few. What, what was it? Frustration, yeah. So here's what I wrote. Retaliation, alienation, frustration, irritation, anger, fear, panic, anxiety. And James did not offer any one of these as a right response when we're dealing with the person who's persecuted. 
But what did he offer? And this is where you're going to get to use your notes. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this passage to you again, but I want to read it from the message translation, and I'm going to read it in small segments. I'm going to read it kind of slow, and I want you to really listen to what you're hearing, and then I'm going to comment on each section. So it begins this way from the message version. Meanwhile, friends, wait patiently for the master's arrival. You see, farmers do this all the time, waiting for their valuable crops to mature, patiently letting the rain do its slow but sure work. Be patient like that. Stay steady and strong. The master could arrive at any time. So in times of persecution, true faith is willing to wait. And true faith responds by looking up and staying calm. And true faith recognizing that it recognizes that suffering is temporary, and true faith anticipates the return of Christ. Listen a little more. Friends, don't complain about each other. A far greater complaint could be lodged against you, you know. The judge is standing just around the corner. So in times of persecution, true faith is willing to look in and to be clean. Um, True faith does not try to hold the persecutor hostage through unforgiveness. Um, True faith keeps short accounts and true faith practices routine repentance. Listen a little more. Take the old prophets as your mentors. They put up with anything, went through everything and never once quit. All the time honoring God. What a gift of life is to those who stay the course. You've heard, of course, of Job's staying power, and you know how God brought it all together for him at the end. That's because God cares, cares right down to the last detail. In times of persecution, true faith takes time to look back so that it can be challenged. True faith is strengthened by and learns from the examples of the men and women of faith who have gone before us and who have been patient in perseverance. And true faith recognizes God's faithfulness. Then finally, verse 12 from the message version. And since you know that he cares, let your language show it. Don't add words like I swear to God to your own words. Don't show your impatience by concocting oaths to hurry up God. Just say yes or no. Just say what is true. That way, your language can't be used against you. In times of persecution, true faith looks forward to the return of Christ and eternity. True faith is consistent. True faith says what it means and means what it says. True faith exercises speech that is guided by integrity and godly character. Now, for me, as I worked through all of these verses this week, there was one particular thing that kept coming back to me that stood out about this passage, and it was the point, uh, look in and be clean. When we're being persecuted, it is far too easy to try to hold the persecutor hostage through our unforgiveness. In reality, we're not holding them hostage. We're holding ourselves hostage. 
We need to come to a recognition that we don't have to hold them hostage. We don't have to hold them accountable because God will. This is God's job. And our job is to begin the process of forgiveness. It's not easy, but it's possible with God's help. Um, I want to read a story to you as a closing. Uh, Many of you are, most of you maybe, are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was arrested at the age of 47 during World War II, along with her aged father, sister, and many of her family members because they housed um, uh, uh, Jews from the Nazis. They were all arrested and sent to a concentration camp. And on the way to the camp, her father died, her sister died in the camp. And then in 1945, Corey, through uh, an administration error, was released from the camp. And as she tells her story, she writes this. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they most needed to hear in this bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh, harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. Hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She says, I fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember of me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out to me, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I had ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand 
into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Isn't that a powerful story of forgiveness? Very powerful. As I worked through these verses, and I contemplated this story, I was forced to go back to to my persecutor. And I was forced to ask myself, if that person were to come to one of our services, and after service, he were to walk up to me and thrust out his hand and ask me to forgive him. I had to ask myself, would I be able to do that? Now, let me say, I did begin the process of forgiveness. I believe forgiveness is a process. And I did begin that process several years ago. But each time something like this comes up, I realize, yet yeah, there's a little more. And there's a little more. And there's a little more. And my conclusion, as much as in my natural self, I don't like this. I know that I have no choice but to extend forgiveness because God has forgiven me of so much and forgives me every day. And so I pray that if that day ever comes and that request is made, that I would extend my hand, though woodenly and mechanically it might be, and that I would experience the same thing. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Perhaps as I've worked us through these verses today, walked us through these verses, and you've heard the story of forgiveness by Corey Ten Boom, maybe there's a persecutor that comes to mind, either from the past or maybe in the present. Have you begun the process of forgiveness? Are you willing to forgive that person or do you choose to try to hold that person hostage? God's way is forgiveness. And that's what he's modeled for us. And so I want to challenge you today that you would take whatever steps are necessary to remove that burden from your heart to release it and to be willing to say, I forgive. And then let God do the work in you. Father God, I pray that for every person in this room today. I pray that where there are points and places of unforgiveness because we've been pressed down, oppressed, persecuted, I pray that we would not hold that person hostage because in reality we're only holding ourselves hostage. But instead, we would willingly walk through the process of forgiveness. And we know that that is a process and that it continues on. I pray that you work that in our hearts today, that we would be a people of surrender. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'll ask the question that I ask every week, and I'm not going to stop asking it. Is there anybody here today and you do not have relationship with Jesus? You've never experienced his forgiveness of your sin in your life. And today there's something stirring in your heart, and you recognize he died for you so that your sins could be forgiven. And that he wants to come back and take you to heaven with him. 
He's giving you eternity. So if you've never experienced a relationship with God and you want to do that today, would you just simply let your hand slide up and let your eyes catch my eyes? Is there anybody here today? And you say, I'm asking Jesus to be my Savior. Is there anyone? Is there anyone at all? Thank you, Father. Would you stand? Thank you, Lord, for all you're doing. I pray that you would just help us be the people that you're calling us to be. Thank you for James and his direct word to us. May it live in our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a great day. See you next week. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.